Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please stand and we'll begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, kindle them the five of your love, send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created. Almighty Father, on this great feast of Pentecost, the birthday of your church, send your spirit upon us to help us always grow in faith, hope, and love, and to bring the faith to all the ends of the earth. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Ambrose. Two kind of personal announcements. First of all, we have a very special guest, at least special to me, and that is my wife and my family are here. The last time my wife was in this room, I was standing here giving the opening remarks, and I saw a look come over her face seven and a half months ago, and the result of that look is with us also little Carlino Giuseppe Carnazzo in the back. We rushed to the hospital, and she had the baby like an hour and a half later. It was amazing. And, and it is also, uh, this week was Father Charles Abudi's 49th anniversary of ordination. Father Charles, could you please stand up? Please welcome back our speaker, Mr. Robert Riley. Thank you very much, uh, Sabatino. Uh, I see there are some intrepid souls I recognized from last Sunday night. When I returned home last week, my oldest son, who is 16, Michael, and an alumnus of St. Ambrose here, uh, said, Dad, how did it go? I said, amazing, uh, there were 400 people there. He said, to see you? <laughs> so it helps you keep your perspective. I'm also very impressed, thank you again, Sabatino, for that kind introduction. Uh, we had two boxes of books out there, and they were gone before I walked through the door. For those of you who don't have a copy, I'm able to summarize the thesis of this book in one dense sentence, that Islam, or Islamism, is a spiritual pathology based on a deformed theology that has produced a dysfunctional culture. A spiritual pathology based on a deformed theology that has produced a dysfunctional culture. Well, that's about it. Any questions? <laughs> Last week, we spent almost the entire evening going over some of the fundamentals of Islam, particularly by contrasting it with Judaism and Christianity, 
And we focused, if you recall, on Genesis and the accounts of creation in the Quran. And we found some rather amazing things in there that make very distinct Allah from the Judeo-Christian God and who we are. If you recall, in the Quran, man is not made in the image and likeness of God. And what likeness is that? Reason and free will. We discovered that there is no original sin in the Quran, only the first sin, which is like the second or third sin. And therefore, there is no salvation history. There is no promise of a Messiah. There is no broken relationship between man and God in Islam because there was no relationship to begin with. And we discovered the other interesting detail that man did not name the animals, Allah did. Man did not have the power to name. And then we found out, remarkably enough, neither did the angels. They had no independent means through which to apprehend reality through words. And this gave us a little preview of what we will see tonight developed in Muslim theology and philosophy. This is one of the greatest human dramas in the history of the world. And it took place in the ninth century in Baghdad during the Abbasid Caliphate. After Islam had poured out of the Arabian Peninsula, conquered the Persian Empire, huge parts of the Byzantine Empire. In those early days, the Caliphate during the first four Caliphs stayed in the Arabian Peninsula and sequestered their troops outside of the cities they had conquered so as not to be contaminated by the Persian or the Christian culture. But after those four caliphates, they moved the capital to Damascus and then later under the Abbasids to Baghdad. And they couldn't uh, maintain that uh, pristine exclusion. And so they began contact with this culture which was, in every respect but the military, superior to their own. And that had a highly developed theology and apologetics and a certain idea of who God is, what his relationship to reason is, and they therefore had to begin to puzzle over their own revelation and its relationship to reason. They were confronted with these questions because of the peoples whom they had conquered posed them, and the Muslims then had to defend their own religion. How were they going to do this? Well, they had to start thinking about it in a completely different way, ways in which they had never thought before. The Quran, you know, is the first book in Arabic. So there wasn't exactly a developed intellectual literature from the Arabian Peninsula. There was some very beautiful poetry, but there were no books. In the first fully developed Islamic theology called the Mutazilites, they began to assimilate the influences through Christianity of the Greek philosophy that gave the priority of reason and of reason's relationship to God. And they came up with an account of things somewhat like this. Now you may wonder how do we have an account of what they thought because in the late ninth century, to give you a little hint what's going to happen later, it is called the closing of the Muslim mind, if you lost an argument in those days, not only was your life in peril, but they would burn all your books. So you wonder, how do we know what these rational theologians thought? 
Well, their opponents would always give an account of their positions before they gave the refutations. The Mutazilites say this, and we say that. So we had some idea, but in the 1950s, some Egyptian archaeologists found in a mosque in Yemen a treasure trove of original Mutazilite writings, mainly of this great thinker, Abdul-Jabbar. So we have an exact account of what they thought and wrote. And Abdul-Jabbar put forth an account like this. This is not going to sound like the Islam you know. He said, man's first duty is to reason, not to submit, to reason. Why? He said, well, because the existence of God is not self-evident. Therefore, you are required to engage in speculative reason to arrive at the existence of God. Well, how, how do you arrive at the existence of God? He said, by observing the rational order in nature. And through this observation, uh, you come to understand that there is nothing in creation that is its own cause. And therefore, he reasons back in a very familiar argument from Christian apologetics to the fact that there has to be an uncaused cause who began all this. There must be a creator. Through the observation of creation, we can see it has a rational order and that this creator himself must be reason. So we have as our first obligation to reason, not to submit. And once we have established the existence of God, then the question might arise, well, has, has he spoken? There are various claims to revelation. How do we tell? By what criteria do we judge whether this the Quran is revelation. And once again, Abdul Jabbar said the criteria, the criterion, is reason. God would not give us this reason and ask us to come to understand a revelation that asks us to believe things that would require us to deny our reason. So the, re the revelation must be, in some fundamental sense, reasonable. Not that this excludes mystery or revelations of things to which we could not reason, unaided by this revelation. So he would examine the Quran and say, in fact, there are things in the Quran that are, are contradictory. For instance, it refers to God as having feet and hands and sitting on a throne. Well, he said, we know God is the spirit, so... This can't be literally true. It offends our reason. Therefore, he said, it's obvious that we weren't meant to take it literally. We were meant to understand this metaphorically. So if you find something in Revelation that is against your reasons, it's a signal that that's, you're supposed to understand it in another way, not literally. This was a big surprise to many Muslims at the time. If you remember a term I mentioned last week, it's Bila kefa, without asking. You accept without asking. Well, the Mutazilites asked. The Mutazilites, therefore, had this notion of a kind of a trinity of reason. God is reason. God gives man his reason as a gift of grace. And we have a rational order in creation through which we can come to know that God exists in the first place. So why have revelation? And they said, well, uh, 
Revelation will tell us things that we couldn't otherwise come to know. For instance, while it is reasonable to believe that we should pray and give thanks to God because we've discovered this benevolent creator, uh, how would we know that we're supposed to pray five times a day as it is required in the Quran? Or how would we know the direction of prayer is Mecca? So Revelation tells us things we couldn't have otherwise known, but having discovered them, we find these reasonable. It's not unreasonable to pray five times a day, except in this culture. But uh, So he would continue in this, in this vein and say, the Mutazilite school emphasized God's rationality and his justice. And we have just touched upon the, rational, the rationality side. On the justice side, they said, man must be able, through his reason, to come to an understanding of what is good and what is evil, of what is just and unjust. And this isn't something just Muslims can do. All men can, through their reason, come to an understanding of what is moral and what is immoral. Otherwise, how could they be held to account for choosing what is good and avoiding what is evil, unless they could come to know this? In addition to which, they must be free to choose. Otherwise, if God punished them for doing something in which they had no choice, God would be what? He'd be a tyrant. He'd be unjust. We couldn't have a God like this. Therefore, these Mutazilites were known as the proponents of God's rationality and his justice. And intricate to that idea of justice was man's free will and reason's capability of coming to know morality. In the ninth century, Caliph al-Mamun, the greatest sponsor of philosophy and Greek thought in the history of Islam, embraced the Mutazilite school of thought, and he sponsored it. And al-Mamun is said to have had a dream in which Aristotle appeared to him. And he asked Aristotle, what is the good? And Aristotle answered, it is what is rationally good. Therefore, Al-Mamun embraced this response, embraced the Mutazilites, and sponsored the first Arab philosopher by the name of Al-Kindi. Abdul al-Jabbar said, because of the status and priority of reason in this theology, quote, it is obligatory for you to carry out what accords with reason, unquote. It's obligatory for you to carry out what accords with reason. Does any of this sound familiar? I should add also that the Mutazilites did another startling thing. They said the Quran did not exist co-eternally with Allah. They said the Quran was created in time. Yes, it was the divine word of God, but it was given to specific people at a specific time in history, in certain conditions, all of which you had to come to understand if you wanted to understand the revelation. It didn't exist co-eternally on a tablet in heaven with Allah. And therefore, the door for interpretation was much broader 
than it was for those people who said the Quran existed co-eternally with God. Now, Al-Mamun embraced this teaching, he sponsored it, he made it a state doctrine that the Quran had been created. And anyone who said that the Quran existed eternally couldn't be a judge or a witness in a trial. He also made it a state doctrine that man has free will. And there was a good deal of opposition to this doctrine. He is the one who created the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. Have you ever heard of the House of Wisdom, the Beit al-Hikmah? Uh, this is the great translation center in the first half of the ninth century in Baghdad that obtained the manuscripts of Plato and Socrates and all the great thinkers, and he hired all these Nestorian Christians to translate these texts into Arabic. So this became a great center for study and scholarship, and scholars from all over the world would come to the Beit al-Hikmah. When you hear people refer to the golden age of Islam, this is what they're talking about. Al-Mamun, the Beit al-Hikmah, the Mutazilites. When Benedict XVI talked about the de-Hellenization of Islam, this was the Hellenization of Islam. This is when it began absorbing the Hellenic influences that had affected Christianity many centuries before. So if this sounds familiar to you, it does so for a very good reason. It's the product of the same influences. Now the second school of Muslim theology arose in direct opposition to every tenant held by the Mutazilites. And these were called the Asherites, named after Al-Ashari, who had been a Mutazilite and at age 40 stood up and said, I abjure Mutazilism, I deny the Quran was created, it was co-eternal, I deny. And he went down the list of everything they believe. And the Asherites, the school of theology named after him, became known as the proponents of God's omnipotence and will. God was not rationality and justice. He was pure will and power, unbound by anything, unconstrained by anything. They were furious that the Mutazilites would try to limit God's action through some conception of justice. God is above any conception of justice. God is above or without reason. As Ibn Hazm said, and as was quoted by the Pope in the Regensburg lecture, God is not bound by his own word. They were highly offended that the Mutazilites had said that man, through reason, can come to know what is good and evil, just and unjust. They said this knowledge is unavailable to man. Why can't man come to know what's good and what is evil? Well, Al-Ghazali, perhaps the greatest Asherite thinker, and a Muslim to this day, who is held to be the second most important, next only to Muhammad, al-Ghazali, said, first of all, your reason cannot be relied upon because it is totally subject to your self-interest. You'll find good, whatever is in your interest, and you'll say evil is the, are those, those things against your interest. But there's a far more important reason. And the reason is that nothing is good or evil in and of itself. All acts are neutral. They're neither good nor evil 
but that God says so, one way or another. There's a famous question posed in, in the Euthyphro, in which they say, do the gods love piety because it's good, or is it good because they love it? And so the Asherites ask, does, does God forbid murder because it's evil, or is it evil because he forbids it? They decisively answered this question by saying, it is only evil because he forbids it. And were he to say otherwise, it would become incumbent upon us to engage in murder. Is lying evil, evil in itself? No. It's only evil because Allah has said not to lie. And he may change his mind and make lying obligatory, in which case it would become moral and incumbent upon you to lie. Nothing is good or evil in and of itself. Now, there is another reason for this that is a result of the metaphysics they constructed to justify their conception of God as pure will and absolute power. They said, for God to be omnipotent, nothing else can be so much as potent. There can be no secondary causes. There can only be the primary cause. God is the primary cause. There are no secondary causes in the natural world. What do we mean by that? What just happened there? Why did the pen fall? Gravity. You have all just committed the sin of shirk. The sin of shirk is uh, comparing something to God. And you have just said gravity made the pen fall, whereas the Asherites would say, by saying so, you have denied God's omnipotence. It was God who made the pen, the pen fall. There is no semi-independent natural law of gravity uh, that makes the pen fall when I release it. It could just as well have risen to the ceiling or gone sideways. And next time it may. Inshallah. Thank you, Ray. Um, and this, yes, ma'am. But it never does. It never does. Okay, here's the. How do they get around the fact that the pen always falls or the rock hits the ground? Or in Al Ghazali's famous example, he said, "Fire does not burn cotton. God does. It's just a coincidence that the cotton ignites when you touch fire to it, but there is no causal relationship between the two." How they get around this by saying, God has certain habits. And it's his habit, it apparently is his habit, to make the pen fall. But gravity hasn't done it. And if you say it is, you have committed blasphemy, the sin of shirk. Now, the constitution of reality, of creation is in the form of atoms. They, they revert to a pre-Socratic form of Greek atomism, and they say that everything is constituted by time and space atoms. And these infinitesimally small time and space atoms have no nature. In other words, they're not disposed to be one thing or another. There's not a plant atom or an animal atom. They're, they're all neutral, faceless atoms. And whatever anything is, at any given point, 
and its existence is the direct result of God willing that agglomeration of atoms to be you. And you only exist in the instant in which, in which he has willed those atoms to cohere into that particular thing, like your chair. Now, were you to say, will this attractive lady remain what she is while I'm finishing my sentence, what would you think? you think she will or not? Okay, why will she remain the same? Because, oh, I see you're coming right along. You, this, an incipient Asherites, and this is very impressive. Ray, you've been leading these, having a bad influence in this parish. Uh, that's exactly right, if God wills. It's, it's exactly that, that there is nothing in human nature that would keep any of us what we are in one instant to the next, because these, these time-space atoms exist only for an instant, they're annihilated, and then God reconstitutes creation all over again, all the time. And there is no connection between one space-time atom and another, but for the will of God directly making that something similar to what it's been before. What have I just done here? You think. You think I've just, there's motion there. That's not what has just happened. What has happened is that my hand has been constituted, annihilated, reconstituted in another space, barely removed from the other, annihilated and reconstituted a series of times until it gives the appearance of motion. I think people here, there's enough gray hair, everyone remembers 35 millimeter film, the way we used to watch movies. Well, when it, the sprockets caught on the wheel and the film moved, it gave the impression of motion. But actually, every single frame was distinct, and the next frame was only infinitesimally different until you had a series of them, which when moved quickly gave the impression that something was moving. That's an analogy to the Asherite metaphysics. Every one of those frames is created independently and distinctly. So here you have Allah up here, and you have a series of things that look like they're continuous in time taking place here. When, according to them, God is directly willing each of these distinct events. And the only thing that keeps them together is God. They have no relationship to each other along this line, none whatsoever. That is because things have no nature. There is no in of themselves. For instance, another quick example. An acorn grows into an oak tree, right? Now, nowhere along the trajectory of its growth from an acorn into an oak tree will it turn into a giraffe, right? Why not? Because it has the nature of an oak tree. This is exactly what the Asherites deny. There is no nature, and there's no accounting for what that oak tree or what that acorn may turn into, and it may not necessarily turn into an oak, but for God's habits. Now Maimonides, the great, great Jewish thinker who had to flee Moorish Spain, ended up in Cairo, and he was trying to give an example of how these people think.
And he said, well, every day through Cairo, uh, the caliph takes a ride. And every day he goes the same way. He goes straight for three blocks, he takes a left for a block, then he goes forward for another. He did it yesterday, he did it last week, he did it this morning. But tomorrow, he might go a different way. Why? Well, because he's the caliph, he can go wherever he wants. Thus, today, the sun rose in the east, it set in the west, it did it yesterday, it's done it for several thousand years. But tomorrow it may rise in the west and set in the north. Why? Because Allah can do anything he wants. And indeed, in in Muslim apocryphal literature, the sun does rise in the west and set in the east. So there are no natural laws. If you're wondering why science was stillborn in the Muslim world, I think you may have a little insight here because of Asherite metaphysics. You don't go searching for the natural laws in the created world if your theology tells you that such laws do not exist and that to suppose such laws exist is is an act of presumptuous blasphemy. I, I need to inflict upon you just a couple of little readings because I sometimes wonder if people actually think I'm making this stuff up. Uh... And that's why in the book, I provide the translations of these philosophical and theological texts from the 9th through the 12th century and later, so that you can see for yourself, this isn't just a one-off. It's not just one theologian in the 9th century. It's repeated century after century after century till these concepts form the culture of the Islamic world, which accounts for its dysfunctional nature. Here we have Muhammad Yusuf al-Sanusi in the 15th century. Again, he's just repeating things. And he's talking about this um, idea that you cannot know good or evil unless God tells you. It is impossible for the Most High, Allah, to determine an act as obligatory or forbidden for the sake of any objective, since all acts are equal in that they are his creation and production. Therefore, the specification of certain acts is obligatory and others as forbidden or with any determination takes place by his pure choice, which has no cause. His choice has no cause. This is a very key thing. God is above or without reason. He's pure will and power. God acts for no reasons. Therefore, what he does cannot be understood. What is one of the things he does? He creates the universe, which itself then becomes unintelligible. There was a great uh, saying by Albert Einstein. He said, the only incomprehensible thing about the world is that it's comprehensible. Isn't it startling that our minds cohere with this reality exterior to us and the concepts and ideas we have of it are congruent with the way things are and because of our understanding we have medicine and refrigerators and machines that this it all works Einstein caught the remarkable by saying it's that's the only incomprehensible thing is that the universe is comprehensible now an Asherite parallel statement would go something like this 
the only comprehensible thing about the world is that it is incomprehensible. Why is that? Because everything in it is the equivalent of a miracle. And the one thing you cannot do is understand a miracle because it's not the product of natural causes. So all nature becomes miraculous and all miracles become natural. The distinction between the natural and the supernatural disappear. So the mind becomes fogged. It has no way to apprehend this reality. Just to finish with Asanusi, so God does not act for reasons. So why does he make something uh, forbidden and another thing uh, uh, permitted? There's no way of knowing. Therefore, he says, intelligibility has no place at all in it. Rather, it can only be known by revealed law sharia. Remember this sentence, intelligibility has no place at all in it. Morality is unintelligible. You can only know it through revelation. And what is the revelation? As we talked last week, it's the Quran. It's the Hadith or Sunnah, the sayings and doings of Muhammad, of which there are hundreds of thousands, a Hadith for every occasion, and what's called Ijma, which is the consensus of Muslim scholars on certain issues. And that is how you must come. Reason can tell you nothing about the goodness or evil of anything you contemplate doing. Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics is impossible. Moral philosophy is impossible. So how are you, as a good Asherite Muslim, to come to understand the moral nature of what you're doing? How are you going to know whether the action you're contemplated is, is encouraged or prohibited, whether it's haram or halal? Well, you better know your revelation and your Islamic jurisprudence very well indeed. And of course, Muslims, most Muslims do not know this. And so they must revert to authorities who do, to qadis or imams or muftis, and ask them and get a fatwa or a ruling. And this has led to what the great Egyptian Jesuit father Samir Khalil Samir calls is a perpetual moral adolescence amongst Muslims. I call it a moral infantilization, and you'll see why when I give you some examples of these fatwas. In Egypt today, in Cairo, there are dial-a-fatwa programs where for an extra charge to the operator, you can get, I'm not kidding, an imam on the phone and ask him about whether what you're going to do, where within the five categories of acts going from uh, halal to haram, what you're thinking of doing falls. Because your salvation may depend upon this. So you need to get the fatwa. There are live fatwa TV shows, and there are authorities that issue fatwas like Al-Aram in Cairo, the, the office of the chief mufti. They, they put out tens of thousands of fatwas. For instance, a woman calls in, I'm in my bath in the apartment. There's a dog in the apartment. Can I get out of my bath? I can see the suspense building here. <laughs> the reason this may not be a question of concern to you is you may not know that in Islam, a dog is an unclean animal. So the answer from the, the Mufti or the Qadi was, um, 
If the dog is a female, you can get out of your bath. If the dog is a male, you can't. Or a launderer uh, inquires, I am a person who has a commercial laundry. A woman who does not wear her veil is bringing her laundry to my store. May I do the laundry? There's another tough one, right? Or a man says, I'm saying my prayers, and a woman walks by. Do I have to say my prayers again? Well, the answer was, of course you have to say your prayers again. If a black dog goes by, a donkey or a woman, you have to repeat your prayers. The donkey is an unclean animal. The black dog could be Satan, and the woman's uh, impure. So you have to repeat your prayers. I mean, there are thousands of these examples. Perhaps the most notorious one was several years ago in Egypt. And this was issued by the head of the Hadith section of Al-Azhar, that great institution which uh, President Obama in his talk in Cairo more than a year ago said was the center of innovation and light that led to the Renaissance and all kinds of other things. So the head of the Hadith section, this being, can you imagine? This is the second most important source of revelation in Islam, the head of the Hadith department in the most prestigious Islamic institution in the world offers this ruling. Here's the problem. A man and a woman are required by their work to be alone in an office together even though they are not related. This in Islam is haram. So the man asks, is there any way to overcome this? Because it's a professional requirement and of course I don't want to do anything that's haram. And so the head of the Hadith section said, yes, there is, uh, there is a way to overcome this problem. If the woman breastfeeds the man five times, this will establish a familial relationship, and therefore you may work together. <laughs> to, to the credit of the Egyptian people, there was such an uproar uh, in Cairo that he was made to withdraw the ruling. But where did he get his material? Well, it, from a hadith in which Muhammad said this to a woman who was raising a child not her own, whom she had adopted, and when she was growing up, she was disturbed by this, this great moral problem within Islam. And that's what Muhammad advised her to do. It's it said in the hadith that he laughed when he said it, but apparently that hasn't translated through the centuries. Now, the Saudis put out a gloss on this fatwa last year to show how enlightened they are in Saudi Arabia. And this fatwa sort of scoffed at the Egyptian fatwa and said, well, the man doesn't physically have to be breastfed by the woman. Uh, I mean, she could get a breast pump and he could just drink it. I am, you know, I'm not making this up. There's no moral philosophy. This is what happens when, when you can no longer think morally, when you cannot reason morally, you're reduced to this. And so you are reliant upon something Muhammad did or said or something in the Quran. And the legitimacy of these hundreds of thousands of hadith are established only by what's called isnad, which is the train of transmission. You know, that Muhammad said it to, to so-and-so and so-and-so said it so that you can establish the legitimacy of the hadith. The content of it 
How crazy it is, is totally irrelevant. The legitimacy of the hadith is never addressed according to whether it's reasonable or not, except by the Mutazilites. They would have raised that question, but not the Asherites who went on to win this struggle. Sir, you had your hand up. The way of thinking that's within, within Islam, their approach, is there a parallel between this and Talmudic Judaism? Um, is there a parallel between this and Talmudic? Well, first of all, you, you should know that in my estimation, Islam got most of its stuff from Judaism and not Christianity. And like Judaism, it is a very legalistic religion. But you should also know that Christianity was tempted by the very same trains of thought, both voluntarism, that is, God is pure will and power, and occasionalism, there is no cause and effect in the natural world. Both of those teachings were proffered and gained some popularity in the Middle Ages. In fact, the Pope talks about this in the Regensburg Lecture and mentions Duns Scotus and others who offered these teachings. And you can also see later in Protestantism these same strains of thought. Solo fides, solo scriptura. Martin Luther saying, reason is the devil's whore. Well, it's right out of Al-Ghazali. That it's only, it's only scripture that can tell you, not your reason. However, this, this strain of thought never triumphed in Christianity. It never became the main orthodoxy for one very good reason that the Pope himself mentions. And that is the beginning of the Gospel of St. John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were made through him. This is a gospel in Greek. The Greek word is logos, which doesn't mean just word, it means reason. So St. John is saying, in the beginning was reason, and God is reason, and all things were made through him as reason. So you can only go so far in Christianity in trying to delegitimize reason, and you bump into this wall, wait a minute. God is Logos. God is reason. And that has served as a break within Christian thought to stop the developments of voluntarism and occasionalism from taking us down the road, this very sad road that Islam has gone. To just give you a little flavor of how literal they take the denial of causality. I'm going to use Asanusi again, but he's just repeating Al-Ghazali from the late 10th century. You become aware of the impossibility of anything in the world producing any effect whatsoever, because that entails the removal of that effect from the power and will of our majestic and mighty protector. For that matter, food has no effect on satiety, nor water on moistening the land, nor fire on burning. Know that it is from God from the start without the other accompanying things that have any intermediacy or effect on it, neither by their nature nor by their power or blah, blah, blah. Whoever holds that those things produce an effect by their nature is an unbeliever. I mean, that is how explicit 
the denial of cause and effect is. So when you lose the narrative of cause and effect, everything becomes incomprehensible to you. I mean, can you imagine how devastating this is, how inaccessible reality becomes to you when you succumb to this? Why in, in uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar are they uh, spending money on higher uh, institutions of learning? Because they need engineers and doctors and physicists, uh, and they are uh, falling grievously behind because they, they don't have those. And you may know in their own countries they are opposed for doing this. Because of this uh, crazy metaphysics and this denial of epistemology that man could come to know anything, the Beit al-Hikmah, by the way, in Baghdad was closed, and Muslim education became reduced to memorization. The fiqh, memorize the law, and education became reduced to Islamic jurisprudence. What the Qadis and Muftis have said, just memorize it. Education was reduced to memorization because of the loss of critical thinking. I want to just make it clear by giving um, this one more time in terms of the, the disconnection of cause and effect. And I will give you Alashari's own example. A man picks up a pen and writes. It is, however, God who creates in him the will to write, the power to write, and then the motion of the hand to the paper with the pen. Allah then also causes the figures to appear on the paper as the pen touches it. So, now these figures appeared when my pen touched it, and those of you who have committed shirk tonight will probably say it was the principle of osmosis that drew the fluid from the pen to the dry paper when I applied the pressure. Shirk, shirk, shirk. I see all of you are committing the sin of shirk. When actually my touching the pen to the paper, according to the Asherites, is completely unconnected with the appearance of the figures on the paper. The consequence of this denial of causality and this reduction of God to pure will and power has produced the dysfunctional world of Islam, and most particularly in the Arab world, and I spelled out last week the extent of that disaster. I can give you a couple of examples to show you how this affects life in its daily, daily ways. For instance, I have my friends in Saudi Arabia, there's a terrible problem getting people to wear their seat belts. Why is that? Well, the thing is, if, if your time has come, <laughs> The seatbelt is not going to save you, and if your time hasn't come, well, then you don't need the seatbelt. Or people I know who have been training Iraqi forces, trying to get them to wear their Kevlar vests. There's a famous line in the Quran, it was not you who shot, it was I, Allah, who shot the arrow. Which makes it hard to get these people to pay attention to marksmanship. Now, you have to aim the weapon, maintain the weapon. Now, if Allah wants the bullet to hit, it will hit. Likewise, if Allah wants the bullet to hit me, the Kevlar vest isn't going to save me. And if it's not going to hit me, I don't need the Kevlar vest. I had a young um, Kurdish friend who went on the Hajj with a very pious friend. And they were circling the Kaaba in Mecca, and they were discussing and arguing over these very issues we're just talking about tonight. 
And his friend touched the famous black stone, and it was cool. And he said, look, under the hot, blazing Saudi sun, the famous black stone is cool. This is a miracle. This demonstrates God's direct action. And my Kurdish friend from a famous smuggling family in the north of Iraq was a little more skeptical. So he walked around, the, he touched it and said, that's right, it is cool. That's, that's very unusual. He walks around the Kaaba until he finds a set of stairs, goes down them, and at the bottom there is a refrigeration unit. <laughs> so he takes his pious friend, walks him down the stairs, and says, this is why the black stone is cool. What was his friend's reaction? Outrage. Outrage. It was a direct assault on his theology. There are people in Saudi Arabia today who still refuse to believe man has been to the moon. Not because they're stupid, but because it's impermissible for man to know all the things he would have had to know to get there. Thrust weight, rotation of the earth, all of those things that you would have to know are, are things you cannot know. And though, therefore, we cannot have been there. Even though there's been a Saudi astronaut. <laughs> you know, who was puzzled because the imams were thinking, what's the direction of prayer in outer space? <laughs> no, I'm serious. These are serious questions. And as you may know, in, in Pakistan, when General Zia al-Haq was the president, he was a fervent Islamist, the imams were complaining about the weather broadcasts on Pakistani TV, uh, which he then had removed for a, a couple of years. What was the problem with the weather forecasts, according to the imams? How would you know? If God directly creates the weather, and he is incalculable, because he acts for no reasons, how then can you calculate the weather? It's an act of presumption. So they, do they think that Ben Rawlings was killed because of holiday? Uh, yes, they would. They would say that he was, he was a martyr. That's, yeah, well, just like writing of the pen, is, you know, just to finish the little thought and the consequences of occasionalism and voluntarism, not only does any conception of justice according to nature go out the window and you're left with just this legalism, uh, but there's no room for free will. I'm trying to stay with the metaphysics. When you drop the pen, it's the olive. How do they know that olive doesn't uh, cause gravity? Why doesn't they, why, why can't Allah cause gravity? It's because he cannot constrict his own powers. He would not be omnipotent according to their understanding of omnipotence if anything else had any power whatsoever. And that includes human beings. I'm going to leave you, um, because we're going to move to Q&A here, with something a friend of mine wrote, who was a, belonged to the most violent terrorist group in Egypt, al-Gama al-Islamiyya. When he was a medical student, he was recruited by this terrorist organization. He knew Zawahiri, the number two in al-Qaeda. But he, he recovered. He's now a neighbor. He lives, he lives, it's okay, folks. He's an Egyptian doctor. His wife is an Egyptian doctor. Taufik Hamid is now one of the most effective people countering 
Islamist terrorist ideology. But he talks about his recruitment uh, and his recruiter, Mukhtar Mukhtar, back in medical school. And here's what he says. This is just listen to this. On the way to the mosque, Mukhtar, his recruiter, emphasized the central importance in Islam of the concept of al-fikr kufr, the idea that the very act of thinking, fikr, makes one become an infidel, kufr, al-fikr kufr. He told me, quote, your brain is just like a donkey. Now remember, a donkey is an unclean animal. Your brain is like a donkey that can get you only to the palace door of the king. Who is the king? Allah. To enter the palace once you have reached the door, you should leave your donkey, your inferior mind, outside. By this parable, Mukhtar meant that a truly dedicated Muslim no longer thinks but automatically obeys the teachings of Islam, unquote. What's significant here is when you reach the palace door, you leave your donkey, your unclean mind, outside. Boethius, the great philosopher in the 6th century, before he was taken out and executed, wrote in the Consolation of Philosophy this beautiful, beautiful line. He said, the soul is at its most free when it remains in contemplation of God's mind. The soul is at its most free when it remains in contemplation of God's mind. Within this dominant form of Sunni Islam that I have described to you, there is no connection between the mind of the creature and the mind of the creator. And it is my position that this severance has created the most profound woes in the Muslim world. There is a great statement by the Holy Father, and I'll stop, Sabatini. I see you getting up back there. <laughs> but this is so beautiful. He was stopped by a student in a, in a street in Rome, and he said this, there are only two options. Either one recognizes the priority of reason, of creative reason that is at the beginning of all things and is the principle of all things. The priority of reason is also the priority of freedom. Or one holds the priority of the irrational inasmuch as everything that functions on our earth and in our lives would be only accidental, marginal, an irrational result. Reason would be a product of irrationality. One cannot ultimately prove, in quotes, either project, but the great option of Christianity is the option for rationality and for the priority of reason. This seems to me to be an excellent option, which shows us that behind everything is a great intelligence to which we can entrust ourselves. Unquote. The priority of reason, the priority of freedom, I hope you've seen that tonight. The great tragedy within Islam is that back in the first half of the ninth century, I could have read this statement, substituted Islam for Christianity, and it still would have read truly. My friends who are struggling within the Muslim world for an opening of the Muslim mind know this. 
They want to reopen these questions about who God is, what his relationship to reason is, so that they can reopen their minds. And someone once asked me, I think last week, have I ever tried to evangelize a Muslim? And I said, no, I'm still alive. <laughs> but in, in whatever modest way uh, can be offered in this book, it, it is meant as to open, open that palace door and you get to ride into it with your donkey, your mind to see Logos, who gave you your reason. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Riley. Thank you very much. We're going to take a, uh, a short break. What are your um, expectations for reform of the Muslim mind? Because your talk, it was excellent. I learned so much tonight and last night for, uh, among many things, very distressing implications for U.S. foreign policy. That's an excellent question. Can everyone hear me, by the way? There was an uh, outstanding Moroccan philosopher who just died uh, a year and a half ago, Al-Jibri. He made the statement that the future of Islam will be Aristotelian or it will not be. In other words, they will have to recover the capacity to think critically or they will become extinct. There, I mean, there's one possibility of what we're witnessing, if we're thinking strategically, is, is the implosion of what remains of a civilization. And civilizations don't always die peacefully. But unless there is some kind of reform at the level at which Al-Jibri said, I, I don't see how they're, they're... It's getting worse. Their collision with modernity, with rationality, with modern science, it's getting worse, not better. The intellectual trends in the Islamic world are away from the reform school, not toward it. It's getting more dangerous for the Islamic reformers I know to work in their own countries. In fact, most of them have had to flee their own countries. And they're either here or in Europe or in Canada. So that, that, that looks very problematic. Now, do you mean to ask me about the, the Arab Spring and what's happening in Egypt and so forth today? This is an extraordinarily dangerous time. It, of course, gives rise to great hopes that these people have thrown off these autocratic, tyrannical regimes but what is there to replace it? And there's one question uh, to ask yourselves that I think will illuminate the landscape. How many people in Egypt do you suppose believe that all people were created equal? <laughs> that means Muslims and cops, men and women, to say nothing of Muslims and Jews. How many do you think? Zero? Well, that's a problem then, isn't it? Since that's the fundamental principle underlying democratic constitutional rule. And if that hasn't been absorbed into their culture, how can it sustain democracy? Otherwise, you'll just see a switch from one oppressor to another. And the great danger is that the best organized group in civil society in Egypt is the Muslim Brotherhood. I can tell you the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan al-Banna, kept al-Ghazali by his bedside. So that's the side of Islam. They are on. They are the main Islamist organization in the world, and even Al-Qaeda is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. 
So it's an extremely perilous, dangerous time for that reason. What is the place of jurisprudence when you don't have free will? Wouldn't the woman with the dog in their house just say, well, God wills me to get out of the bathtub, or he doesn't? I'm afraid you weren't listening to the Bila Kepa without asking, without asking how. These conundrums are simply left there uh, and are to be accepted. So, uh, you know, most of what someone did ask me, well, how is it that they have doctors and engineers and they do all of this stuff? Just because they teach this bizarre metaphysics and have these strange notions, it doesn't abolish reality. Reality's still there. So if you want to eat your breakfast, you're going to have to start a fire. And if you're, you know, a good asherite, you'll say, well, the match isn't actually igniting the gas, but thank God, God has done this for me. Uh, but you still have to operate in the real world, and, and that forces them to conform to some degree to these things. While they can become excellent doctors and engineers and so forth, there is almost zero original science in the Arabic world in terms of patents or any original research because that creative, critical thinking that it requires has been absent for so many years and because of the denigration of reason. Uh, my question is short. Why did the Asherite group win the other one? Excellent. The question is, why did the Mutazilites lose, and why did the Asherites win? And it's not because they won the argument. It's because three caliphs after al-Mamun, Caliph al-Mutawakil, in the second year of his reign, suppressed them with force. And the Mutazilites had to run for their lives. They were purged from court, court and the legal courts, and they ran to the Shia portions that were not under the control of Baghdad, and the Shia Muslims welcomed them because at, at, around that same time, the 12th Imam in Shia Islam went into occultation, which means he disappeared. And in Shia Islam, they say Muslims don't have a pope. In, in Shia Islam, they did have a pope. It was the Imams who continued to receive, according to them, direct divine guidance. So when the last one disappeared, the Shia thought, well, what are we going to do now without direct divine guidance? And the Mutazilites arrived and said, well, you have to think for yourselves and we can show you how. So they were welcomed by the Shia. And because Mutazilism then became so identified with Shiism, they're hated even more by the Sunnis. But they, their Shia thought survived there for some time. It's the reason, by the way, that philosophy has never been banned from the Shia world the way it was in the Sunni world. But it was sheer force on the Asherite side that did it. Um, so then this question comes off, off of that question in terms of the Mutazilites and the strand of Shia Islam that uh, you would say uh, supports, supports the primacy of reason, but then still fundamentally there's a question of the primacy of Christian revelation over uh, Islamic revelation. And uh, I was just hoping that you might explain what you'd, what you'd say to that within the context of Mutazilite Islam and, and Shia Islam? What would who say? What, what, what in terms of what, how, how you would respond to the, the primacy of Christian revelation over, over, over the Quran and Muslim revelation that takes into account the same type of reasonable, uh, or the, the same ideas well, I of, of reason that, and Hellenistic yeah. ideas that, well, I mean, that Christianity adopted? Well, I mean, as a Christian, adopted. obviously, I, 
yeah, I don't believe that the Islamic revelation is genuine. Uh, but with a, a, a Hellenized Muslim, you could have a dialogue. Just as the Pope said in the Regensburg lecture, and as Thomas Aquinas said, I mentioned last week, when the Dominicans asked him, how are we supposed to deal with these Muslims? Were you here last week? Oh, well, then you remember, of course you remember my answer. <laughs> he said it can't be from our respective revelations because we don't accept theirs, they don't accept ours. So it's only through reason. But that only works if your interlocutor accords to reason its own integrity and ability to come to know the truth. And in Sunni Islam, that's what was undermined, and that's why it's so difficult to have a dialogue with them. It's, it's easier with, with some Shia imams to talk in this way because they have never banned Aristotle. Uh, Mr. Riley, you say we live in dangerous times, and would it be fair to say that the ultimate danger is nothing less than the rise of a caliphate that is a fundamentalist Sunni Islamic state from Pakistan to Algeria armed with nuclear weapons and, and, and seeking the destruction of the West? Yes. <laughs> I, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I don't think they're competent enough to pull that off. But the idea animating bin Laden and al-Qaeda was to combine Pakistani nuclear weapons with the oil wealth of the Middle East as the basis for a new caliphate that could then challenge the West. And unfortunately, even though he's dead, there, the, Pakistan is in a state of tremendous peril today because of their own advocacy of these Islamists. It's coming back to bite them now. They created the Frankenstein monster, and now it's turned on them. And also, this you know, Arab Spring uh, creates another danger that brings things, ironically, closer to what they were hoping for than most people think. But will they get there? I don't think they will. Will they continue to try to use every terrorist means they can? Certainly. You mentioned... Um Azurites regarding God as having certain habits uh, as an explanation for why the world seems to act consistently, or rather God seems to cause the world to act consistently. Uh, is there room in the philosophy for the idea that um, by observing and learning God's habits, we learn about God and about who he is, and thus are able to uh, predict how he might act in the future? No. All you can learn is that he usually sticks to his habits. And when asked why does he stick to his habits, Al-Ghazali explicitly says, we, we, we cannot know. Because he acts for no reasons. When we look, when we look at the uh, history of Islam and the West, for the vast majority of Muslims, their experience and knowledge of the forcible uh, advance of religion is of Christians advancing on their countries. With this background, what should we as individuals or as a nation be doing to help Islam to regain reason? Well, we should be helping the people within is the, the Islamic world who, who want to uh, change it in the very ways in which we've been speaking. And why we don't do that is uh, one of the terrible anomalies of our time. And I, that's a completely bipartisan criticism, I assure you. We aren't helping those people inside the Muslim world who are working for a reopening of the mind. We should be giving them transmitters, printing presses, physical protection, and other things so they can disseminate 
their ideas. I've got a question regarding the this co-eternal existence of the Quran with God. From other lectures we've had, the Quran <laughs> at times changes the will of God from one er part of the early part of the Quran to another part. So if it's co-eternal, I have a question with that. If it's a developmental thing, then you can say, okay, well, it's, it's changed. You know, if this isn't working. I got to change by you know, God changes His will. But if it's co-eternal, this dualism doesn't work for me. You know, how does a Muslim respond to that? Well, it doesn't work for me either. I, I can tell you that, um, you know, that you be the kefa without asking how. Surrender reason and submit to the text is the guidance on Saudi websites. I have a uh, friend who is a great scholar of Arabic and, and Islam. Did I lose? No. Still hear me? And he told me of one of the great French scholars on Islam who went to a conference on the Quran in Morocco. And even Muslims will admit that, I mean, there are grammatical errors and things in, in the Quran that, I mean, you'd think God would know grammar. <laughs> and the French scholar was saying to the Moroccan Muslim scholar, well, look, this part of the Quran, what it says here, no one has ever been able to understand this. And the Muslim response was, I know, that proves it's from God. <laughs> if God is incomprehensible, some of the things he says should be incomprehensible. Um, it appears to me that from their perspective, there is no responsibility for anything. Is there, well, that's a very interesting question because it, in the Quran... Uh, there, there are two very clear veins. One is that God is going to hold you responsible for what you've done, and the other is that he's already decreed what you're going to do. So as Ibn Taymiyyah uh, wrote, uh, creatures cannot affect God because it's God who creates their acts. So you're left with this anomaly, uh, this kind of schizophrenia of you're being hold, uh, held accountable uh, for something that uh, he may be doing. Now, but you see what you're doing is you're applying these mutazilite categories of that wouldn't be just, or as if God is subject to your conception of justice. He's, whatever he does is just. There's a famous saying in the Republic, Plato's Republic by Thrasymachus, right is the rule of the stronger. <laughs> Which, of course, we all think is, well, whoever is the most powerful gets to tell people what to do. But that's not what is meant in Islam. This is raised to a theological level. That right is the rule of the stronger. God is the strongest. So whatever he does is right. Whatever. It's not subject to any of these categories that you are mentioning. Bob, riddle me this, if you would. Is this the Asherite agitator, Raymond, yes, over here? So uh, we have this omnipotent God, Allah, right, who uh, writes everything in someone's future. But is it, is it his habit or is it that he's monolingual? Why is it only in Arabic? Be the kefa, without asking. But it, it is in Arabic, and because of their conception of the Quran, uh, if you are a Muslim, you, as you probably know, 
uh, uh, first of all, you'll have an Arabic name, and you have to pray in Arabic. So you have hundreds of millions of people around the world who are not Arabic, who pray in Arabic, who memorize the Quran in Arabic, and have absolutely no idea of what they're saying. And this all goes back to the idea that Arabic is, uh, is God's language. This goes, leads into another uh, question, and that is, to what extent is this belief system universal among Muslims, including, for example, the, the, Soviet, the ex-Soviet republics? Excellent, sir. Everyone hear that one? I have been, the, these two evenings, speaking to you exclusively about Sunni Islam. Sunni Islam is the majority of Islam. It's 85, 90% of the Muslim world. And I've been talking within that of the majority theological school, the Asherite school. So I'm talking about the majority of the majority. And that covers most especially the Arabic world, South Asia, Pakistan, places like that. Now there are other theological schools, the Maturidite uh, and so forth, that have simply less influence. And it is the Asherite school that since the Middle Ages has decisively formed certainly Arab culture in most Islamic culture. And that's why it's dysfunctional. The caliphate has always puzzled me. What is or was it? Does it exist anywhere? If not, why not? What was the caliphate? The caliphate was the form of Islamic rule uh, based upon this radical monotheism and the one people, the Ummah, gathered under uh, the rubric of the one Allah to be ruled then by the caliph who was God's shadow on earth. And the caliphate, as I mentioned, uh, started in Saudi Arabia, the first four caliphs referred to as the righteous ones, before the uh, Umayyads moved it to Damascus and then the Abbasids created Baghdad. And on and off the caliphate existed until 1924, when Kamal Ataturk abolished it. And this sent the Muslim world into a state of shock. And in reaction to it, in 1928, the Muslim Brotherhood was founded, as were other Islamist organizations dedicated to the restoration of the caliphate. The fact that it doesn't exist uh, threw Muslims into as much of a quandary as we Roman Catholics might be if, if Rome disappeared, if the Pope wasn't there. So it, it, it's really agitated them a great deal. And since the idea of reform in Islam is always going back because Muhammad, or sorry, Allah said to Muhammad in Medina, this is the best community. That means they have their model and they must somehow try to replicate that society then, which would mean a caliphate. Thank you very much. It's been Thank wonderful to much, be with you. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.